0: Welcome to the 164th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan
1: and I'm Toby Chad.
0: It's 33 years to the day since Curtly Ambrose took eight for 45, the best figures of his Test career, to see off a gutsy England resistance in Barbados. As poor Jack Russell learnt, sadly, even a six-hour half-century isn't enough to deny so curtly.
1: Jack Russell is one of those interesting figures who I know mostly through his hat and through his Twitter account showing his um, drawings. But actually, I don't know much about him as a... As a cricketer, but a six-hour half-century sounds like a, a reason to delve into his career. So maybe there's a from the archives, there in a future Reverse Sports Radio. Um, in this episode, we are going to be looking back to uh, 1964 to a teenage Ian Botham. We're going to be reviewing uh, the dramatically titled "Caught Out: Crime, Corruption, Cricket." not um, two full can- stops lots of full stops, lots of alliteration who could resist that particular Netflix extravaganza um, released hot off the press, released just a month ago, anyway we will be giving our verdict on that shortly um, but Andy in the meantime, you have been visiting a particular pavilion
0: So I've made it into the Lord's Pavilion thanks to uh, a very kind friend who is a Middlesex member um, th- this was, I- I've wanted to go for ages and i sadly have missed out before because you have to be kind of suited and booted and i've been Mm. offered the opportunity exactly you've got well you've got to be ready you've got to be attired and prepped um now, for cricket fans all over the world, it's obviously a place of legend, um, and I'm delighted to say that it lives up to that, um, and, and maybe it sort of has to live up to that, because you know you, you go in and you sort of see everything with sort of a sense of wonder, so yes, how much of what you're seeing is the reality, and how much of what you're seeing is the mystique is um, is a philosophical question, but anyway, no one would build a pavilion like this today. Mm. Um, it is kind of madly eccentric, you can really explore, and there's lots of little cubbyholes, um, and really reassuringly you keep turning corners in corridors and finding yet another bar or another place to have tea so so that's crucial so was this during a game that you were in there it was it was during uh, so the county championship season uh, as i know you're going to come to is, is up and running this week and this was to do this was at the end of a day between middlesex and essex and it was extremely wet so there was very little going on outside mm-hmm. the field. Mm-hmm. So this was why my, my friend had offered, offered the chance to, to take a tour. Um, I hadn't really appreciated how much of it feels like walking around a cricketing art gallery. So there's all these wonderful works of the, the greats of the game... Um, and I learnt that I hadn't known before that they're actually rotated so that if Australia for example are coming over this summer they'll put up lots of the Australians which obviously makes sense
1: um, I thought you were going to say that if, if the Australians are coming they put up all of the kind of great English players who have you know terrorised Australian batting lineups <laughs> over
0: the years you wonder whether the home advantage might come into play slightly there a, a sense of intimidation yeah um, no it, it, it's a lot of fun wandering around and actually there, there are a few paintings there I saw that I thought oh this would be a good this would be a good feature on the podcast so um so so watch this space um and uh but but there are lots of lots of highlights but i think um We sat in, there are a series of comfy chairs in the long room and sitting in one of Mm. them and sort of watching, admittedly not very much cricket because there wasn't much cricket going on in this late afternoon session, but catching a little bit of cricket there felt like um, a real highlight and a real privilege. Um, The pavilion, I should also say, it does cut to that sort of issue that a lot of people have around lords about sort of history and access to the game in the short period of time i was there i saw someone being told off for taking a beer out of the bar and i was sort of torn on this because i thought god this all feels very um officious but then on another hand I, i can sort of see that for the lord's pavilion to be what it should be you can't really have everyone just wandering around with pints so um yeah
1: I remember, I mean, I haven't been to many um, pavilions, but I remember when you came to Australia, actually, what would have been seven or eight years ago, and we went to the um, MCG down in down in Melbourne. And one of the things that's remarkable about the MCG, I mean, the ground as a whole, obviously, is a, is a stadium rather than a cricket ground. But when it comes to what you, I mean, it's not really a pavilion, but it's very much a sports center that the you know the dressing rooms are underground and they're all very much decked out for the players and you come up through a kind of underground car park up to the ground what lords has that i think is unique is this sense that you kind of the players there's no separation between the kind of art gallery and the living breathing international cricket part of this so you see the players kind of walking through that art gallery in their studs on the way to and from the you know to and from the pitch which again to what you were just saying in terms of how you preserve that perhaps that's what the kind of rules are required to preserve because that is a very careful balance to have something that's a kind of elite sporting venue and something that is a historical antiquity at the same time
0: it's a really interesting comparison because I remember that visit when we did the stadium tour and the MCG is just massive, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Everything is massive. And actually, the long room isn't that big. You can imagine yeah, wandering yeah. in there. Um, and it, and it, in its own way, I can see the MCG being incredibly intimidating if you're an Englishman coming out to bat a few wickets down. In its own way, I imagine the long room can be, can be too. Um, now, moving from, you know, the grand old home of cricket... I guess to a county that is often much, much put upon and, and much maligned, but is um, is having its moment in the sun. We, we
1: we have not done yet the feature on the Leicestershire Pavilion, but maybe maybe yes. we should. Um, so I don't look. I have to say I don't follow as much county cricket as I should or I would I would like to. Um, partly because of the kind of tyranny of time zones and it all happening overnight, my my time, and partly through the tyranny of lack of time. Um, but I do kind of occasionally choose a game to keep an eye on if they're looking interesting and my eye was caught by the um leicestershire yorkshire uh, f- uh fixture which is just um which is just uh, wrapped up there are a few reasons for that one of them was seeing um ryan ahmed who's obviously england appearances um i think the youngest i hadn't quite realized young youngest english cricketer to appear in all three formats um and i hadn't actually catch, caught much of him over the um european over the english winter over those games so I, I wanted to watch a bit of him i was also intrigued to see how leicestershire would go after having not won a game for the entirety of um of last season i admit made a kind of slightly perverse fashion fascination in how, how that would go um well if if any if i were to choose any game to have followed in the county season so far i think i think i backed inadvertently backed a very very good horse um here so for those who didn't didn't follow it to kind of long story short Yorkshire declared on the final final morning leaving a target almost 400 felt kind of impossible it would have been Leicestershire's first win at Headingley since 1910 so 100 and whatever that is 113 years um Leicestershire what's what's actually really fun about this is Leicestershire kind of came out not thinking we're going to bat this out for the draw you know two and a half sessions to go but actually came out scoring at five and over um uh, Rishi Patel scored a debut century, which is kind of a nice moment because he was a cricketer who, you know, we all thought at the age of 18 that he was going to be the next big thing. And here he is at 26, just, you know, kind of shunted over to join Leicestershire, a kind of cricketer whose career hasn't lived up to its promise. So nice to see that that moment. Um, Leicestershire entered the final hour needing 103 from 16 overs. Donbass took a five for suddenly they needed 62 with three wickets in hand Um, and then good old Pete Hanscom obviously from my neck of the woods um, Mm. guided the you know guided the chase home so it was one of those kind of brilliant games to um, follow with with sort of everything in it in terms of um, intrigue around the players some of them with international ambitions intrigue around the season and just great cricket the other thing I would say on the back of your little thing about ICC cricket you know whatever it's called the online TV thing Mm, mm. um, that every single ball of this you can go onto YouTube and watch again as well as highlights package which is just fantastic in terms of a county game a brilliant county game that a few years ago would just have been lost and you'd be reading the scorecards for but now you can go and kind of properly properly watch which I think is fantastic
0: It's a great story, also because Leicestershire. When certain people want to say, "How do we change the county game? Eighteen is too many." Mm. Leicestershire is always one of of the go-to. Let's get rid of Leicestershire. Let's get rid of who needs Leicestershire. And there'll be people listening who have far more expertise in this than I, but I understand they've currently got a very dynamic chief exec who is sort of trying a lot of stuff and has done really um, innovative things with pricing. They've got big attempts to sort of redevelop the venue. Um, but for all of that, you need some success as well on the field, don't you? You can do everything you can, you need but you've get got to. And, and what a win this is. I mean, my, my understanding is that, you know, uh, Yorkshire broadly seen as too big for Division Two, they're, they're, mm. they're expected to sort of dominate this. And wow, I mean, quite a chastening defeat and also fantastic just for the the competitiveness of the division. Well, a
1: chastening so. defeat, but also what a cracking a cracking game, you know, over a thousand runs scored across, you know, across four days. What a great advert for what. The, the other thing about early season county cricket is always the pictures of the rainy ground with the one guy with his umbrella and his dog <laughs> next to him and the empty stadium, you know, the empty stands around him. But what a great advert for, you know, um, for county cricket
0: as a whole. We, we probably have to make the obligatory reference to, you know, is this Bazball coming to county cricket? You know, nearly 400 chased in a day. Gets everywhere, this Bazball
1: From the archives and in this episode, Andy is going to be taking us back to 1964 when the teenage Ian Botham loses his teeth but wins the match.
0: So we're at Taunton for the quarterfinal of the Benson and Hedges Cup between Somerset and Hampshire, which was for many years the county one-day competition. And at this point in its history, it was played over 55 overs, a slightly eccentric length, but there you go. Ian Botham is just 18, so, you know, a schoolboy, and already a regular in the Somerset side. He makes a decent start in this game. He takes two wickets in the first innings, including the prize wicket of Barry Richards, Hampshire make 182, so not a great score. But I had to remind myself, looking at some of the other scores in the tournament, that actually this wasn't a terrible. It's score. more than you'd think. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, 182 in limited overs today is obviously you know game over. In
1: 55 but... overs, which is what a run rate of my maths isn't good enough here to work this out off the top of my head. But it's a run rate of under th- th- is about three and over, isn't it? I, I think we can agree um... it is
0: a it, it's it's an uninspiring run rate, certainly by by modern standards. Um, but
1: but any but anything over three and over in limited overs cricket at this point was actually a good mm, a good rate. You
0: were com- yeah, you were certainly competitive. And Somerset's response goes very poorly. Um, and both them batting at nine, which obviously you know this was before, well before he was established as a sort of true all rounder, comes out at one hundred and thirteen for seven, which very soon becomes one hundred and thirteen for eight. 70 runs still needed and Botham has just the tail enders Hallam Mosley and then Bob Clapp for company
1: so just as a as a small aside is um was Botham fundamentally a bowler to start off with before he before he added batting to his um you know to his he was a kind of uh latter-day Steve Smith um added batting as a kind of second second string to what he did it's actually a complete blind spot for me I don't I, I no, think that's I play. think that's
0: right. I think there's also probably just an extent to which, as someone so young, I think you're right. He was picked at this stage primarily for his bowling, and I think as an eighteen year old, there were presumably others in the batting lineup who were seen as sort of more um, more experienced. Um, but yes, I think very much a bowling a bowling all rounder at this mm. stage. Um, so it's a tough spot and if it wasn't already a tough spot the bowling attack includes antigua's finest uh, andy roberts um in research for this i was looking at a few of the um, nicknames that he's been sort of given at various times it, which include the expressionless assassin and the hitman so you sort of you, you know what you're in for with andy roberts um Botham, however, met Roberts with the bravado that would later become his trademark, so he hooks an early delivery for six. The next bouncer, however, was considerably quicker, and Botham realises this too late. He tries to protect his face with his hand, but the ball crunches the hand into his mouth, which I think is difficult to visualise, isn't it? But even with with your hand in front of your mouth, the power is such that you can't protect yourself
1: so he presumably took his hand off his bat and the ball hit his hand but obviously you know his hand wasn't in a strong enough position to resist the impetus of the ball and kind of every everything you know kind of hand and ball all
0: went Exactly. His. Well, That's I'll, I'll now give you... Um, and The assassin, th- indeed. F- well, for those of you of a more squeamish disposition, ma- make sure that you're not in the middle of, you know, eating anything, uh, eating anything soup. dubious, because um, this is the Ian Botham account of what happens next. I dropped my bat and backed away, cursing, spitting blood, then realised that I was spitting bits of teeth as well. Mm. Two teeth had been knocked out, <sighs> another two broken off at the gum line... Even more alarmingly, they were on opposite sides of my mouth and the ones in between were noticeably looser than they had been moments before. Roberts turned to pace back to the end of his run-up, ready to deliver the next thunderbolt. So,
1: so, so not acknowledging at all that he was standing here with blood, <laughs>
0: blood on his feet from his... Yeah, okay, that, That's what the expressionless assassin does. Indeed. As Roberts did so, I spat out the last fragments of tooth, took a few sips of water from the glass of water that the 12th man had brought out and let him assess the damage. Believing that the game was lost, he and some of the crowd wanted me to retire to avoid further punishment, but that had never entered my mind. It's quite an account. Yeah, it really is. And I think uh, it's interesting also, we think of... um, the idea that this was horrifying enough that the crowd as well was sort of saying, you know, this is this is too much. Both of them, however, kept going. And in the end, he kept going and going. He continued to attack and with Mosley keeping him good company, brought down the target. There was a twist when Mosley fell to Roberts with Somerset just seven runs short, but both was not to be denied and victory was secured with an over to spare and both finished unbeaten on 45.
1: I mean, we've we've heard about um, how Roberts just turned turn back and walked back to his mark. Do you know if he bowled any more bouncers?
0: So we don't. I, I mean, I, I, it would be great to have a more detailed account. One theory is that, um, and this sounds pretty plausible to me, given that Roberts was not only quick, but also famously a sort of very intelligent bowler, was that the, the bouncer that Botham hooked for six was all part of the plan, so that Roberts would often mm. slip in a slightly slower bouncer, get the batter to Easy think... Pickings. Exactly, and then the next one's quicker. So the idea is that it was strategy. So I don't know if Roberts bowled more bouncers, um, but... Uh, it, it would not surprise me if he did. Um, yeah.
1: I mean, it speaks to the intensity of the. I mean, you, you started off by saying that the Benson and Hedges Cup was, in, you know, indeed the primary county one-day competition. And whenever you see footage and highlights of it, the, ga- the you know the games are always absolutely packed, and it was clearly alongside the main county championship. It was obviously the real. Um, trophy that all the counties were, were aiming for but both in terms of the bowling but also here in terms of you know Botham's desire to see the game through as an 18 year old I mean I wonder how much of it was about the tournament how much was it was him as an 18 year old wanting to kind of show his bravado but still this kind of quarterfinal clearly meant a lot to everyone that it could kind of see these kind of scenes of teeth spitting mm-hmm. on
0: the pitch. Yes, and I mean, unsurprisingly, given that damage, that, you know, t- teeth-spitting damage, um, the doctor would tell Botham after the game that he had suffered a concussion, um, and Botham would later say that this explains why he felt what he describes as a curious sense of detachment during the remainder of the which is a very odd thought, isn't it? I mean, he, the idea that he was concussed actually led him to sort of be somehow more relaxed about the setting. Um, Yes, it
1: is. It is kind of um, yeah, curious. I mean, nowadays, where in every sport, everyone, you know, and and rightly so, given what we know is the long-term damage as well of, of, of repetitive head injuries, everyone is tested, you know, um, furiously after getting any kind of a, of a of a head injury. But it is an interesting one that, you know, the twelfth man kind of suggested, and maybe a few people in the crowd said, "I'll get off the ground," but beyond that, there was no. Official sense that even though you'd been hit by in the head by a bouncer to the extent that it had loosened teeth throughout your entire mouth, that there might be anyone, any kind of reason to, you know, to leave the ground. It is kind of the Wild West a little bit, isn't it?
0: Well, I think this is exactly why when we retell this story and slightly celebrate it you do feel a little bit conflicted don't you because there's no reason that an innings like this should ever be allowed to happen I mean a modern day Botham equivalent would be wearing a helmet and as you say Mm. you know the concussion protocol you would you would very much hope would kick in but but I have to say at the same time I think I'm able to sort of square that and say, I don't want this to happen again, but I can still sort of salute the the heroics. And, you know, I'm sure we, we have done, and I'm sure we'll come back to more both of heroics on this podcast. But um, there is a remarkable courage to this, particularly given his age. I mean, the idea that as an 18-year-old, you would be facing Andy Roberts is one thing, but to be facing Andy Roberts, having lost a load of your teeth, um, is is quite something else. to the review and for this episode we've been watching Caught Out Crime Corruption Cricket uh, which is a documentary on Netflix released only last month the director is Supraya Sobti Gupta and it covers the investigation into the match fixing scandals that rocked cricket in the early 2000s now this is a topic I kind of tend to avoid I want to you know I, I want to I'm a sunny side up guy I want to do the nice you things you want to believe cricket. that
1: cricket is a beautiful game
0: it, it, exactly um but it's probably good for us to see this other side. Um, what, what did you learn about, you know, this dark side of the game?
1: Well, the focus of this, um, of this documentary was interesting because it was all about the efforts to investigate, not necessarily about the match-fixing kind of per se. Um, and one of the things that it revealed was how it took a few entrepreneurial individuals to really uncover match-fixing, um, at all, and the association between, um, well, Indian cricketers, but also Hansie Cronje, obviously the South African captain, um, and 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 bookmakers. Um, at the time, match fixing wasn't considered. Obviously, it was happening, but it was not considered to be a thing in the public eye or the official eye. And it took uh, it took kind of considerable guts for some individuals to um, see it through in terms of investigating it journalists and then the police but then also this interesting figure who kind of pops up throughout the documentary Manoj Prabhakar um, who um, is the first Indian cricketer to actually speak up and to you know talk about um, talk about the um, talk about match fishing within the game all the time while this was happening the BCCI were trying to shut it down they were trying to deny it but there were just these individuals who kept on kind of pushing it through without whom it seems the whole match-fixing kind of story would um, would never actually have
0: broken. It, it's quite alarming, isn't it, in that regard, how much you're reliant on um, a mix of sort of, as you say, luck and a few individuals. Um, I was really struck by the fact that the Hansi Cronia story was really broken through luck. The Indian police yeah, were yeah. investigating a separate extortion case and then these astonished Indian officers suddenly heard Hansi Cronia's voice on the line and thought, Oh, God. Yes. Um,
1: they heard someone say "Hi Hansie," yeah. Yes, and they exactly. thought, on, who's who's Hansie? And because they were cricket fans, they knew it was Hansie and They yeah. followed through, and that's how Hansie Cronje got. Yeah, and, and I think out, this was the know, very the kind of biggest bad news for
0: Hansie Cronje, which is that had had his name been, you know, Bob, then it might have been easy. But um, <laughs> once it was "Hi Hansie," you were in you were in all sorts of trouble.
1: Well, and that is it's interesting you should pick up on that example because actually the way in which it was investigated um, is in itself kind of um interesting and they go to london to find the kit that they can use to do some undercover kind of recording they, they use some innovative investigative methods to actually make this make this
0: happen well it, it's funny isn't it because um as you say there's things like uh, a camera in a suitcase and it all feels a little bit sort of Old school James Bond, and I imagine a lot of this kit now is sort of old hat. Presumably, in the intervening twenty years, you know, we've been, But it is um, there's something wonderfully entrepreneurial about the journalists, and I think the success of this documentary largely rests on these journalists because um, there's a lot of interviews with them, and it's just a reminder that you need these. i I want to think of a better word than eccentrics because they're more than eccentrics but you need these sort of um characters who are willing to rock the boat um and do things a bit different and and they're they're a good bunch aren't they
1: one of my favorite characters in the documentary was a fellow called minty i can't remember his surname but i can remember his first name because it's minty um and he has the most remarkable pair of eyebrows and he is just a kind of film documentary editor um, who is working on the initial documentary film that puts together. So when they break the case kind of um, first saying that there is um, match fixing in the Indian establishment. They put together a documentary that they show to a whole lot of journalists. And this is made up of the footage that they have filmed using this secret equipment. Um, And there's this wonderful moment where um, where he says he was sent back these kind of hours and hours of undercover recordings. You know, a lot of them just showing table legs with horrible audio because the suitcase with the secret camera hadn't been positioned, you know, particularly well. And he just said, it was at that moment that he realised it was an effing this whole thing was going to be an effing nightmare to do but yet he followed it through out of this sense I think of whilst the love of cricket from the Indian public was kind of an impediment because there was this sense for everyone of you don't muck with these people who are absolutely held at the heart of the nation's affection whilst in some senses that's an impediment on the other hand that's actually an incentive there's this real sense of well if that's the case then we really have to get to the bottom of you know what's going on here and the drive of these individuals against public sentiment and also against the BCCI is, yeah, as you say quite
0: quite extraordinary and they do, um, this investigation does bring these figures down, I mean, Mohammed Azruddin is probably the one who's given the greatest amount of attention in, in the film um, and as you say, kind of the, the documentary I think does a wonderful job in showing what it means to to India to, to see a figure like that sort of brought, brought low and um, And I think also this idea that you... It was be- the, the cricket for, for India is sort of so much not just a pleasure but so much a matter of national pride. So there's this sense of betrayal about we gave you the honor of captaining our mm-hmm. nation, and this is this is how you responded. And I, I think the documentary brings that home really, really well. Um, and yes, the ju- the journalists and the police investigators they all see this as, as a moral crusade, don't they? As sort of cleaning yeah. up yeah. of something that matters to yeah. India. Yeah.
1: So Mohammed Azrazin, there's also Kapil Dev um, and there are a couple of others um, within the Indian establishment who are convicted under the
0: well, I can't remember what it's called—the kind of corruption thing. We should um, we should caveat with Kapil Dev is the one where they don't find anything, do they? Because managed by Capildev, they <laughs> don't. Just so to answer, ensure lawyers, that Reverse Foot Radio doesn't us. face any future lawsuits no, from Kapil indeed, Dev. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, we
1: don't we don't have the money to see Kapil Dev in court, um, or frankly, the energy. Um, but by the end of the by the end of the documentary, and I hadn't actually quite realised this, all of them was all of those people were subsequently exonerated and out of this entire saga there is only one kind of finding that 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 stands which is our friend Manoj Prabhakar who um was the first person to talk to the journalists. but ironically was then he said that Kapil Dev had approached him about um throwing a game and he said no 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 he spoke to the journalists about that Kapil Dev didn't you know no no kind of charges were brought no evidence was found for that but then eventually Prabaka um was found to actually himself have links to some bookmakers not to have thrown any matches but to have those kind of links and he's the only person against whom any kind of conviction sticks and so suddenly you get to the situation at the end where it's kind of well everyone has got off scot-free from it so what are we to believe therefore that maybe these individuals didn't do it but what does that mean for the kind of wider state of indian cricket and the kind of max racing that goes with yeah. that. how did
0: that leave you well i think there's a difference though isn't it between I, I agree with you and it's clearly very disappointing particularly for the police officers involved but at the same time my understanding is that Mohammad azradin's reputation in india has never recovered you know i don't think i, mm. I think he, he is he has always been tainted with this despite the official verdict i think there is still a perception in the indian public i, I was left and and i think With a feeling, and I think the documentary makers could quite credibly say, well, this is not what we were trying to do. Because they gave us a little insight into quite a few of the incidents, I was sort of left wanting more, so I, I think yes. the managed Prabaka story is totally fascinating, you know yes. as I think one of the interviewers said he was either incredibly gutsy or incredibly stupid if it 's you know and, and I would love to hear a bit more on that i 'd love to have got a bit deeper both into the allegations on Azra and, and and I think um, I know it 's been done elsewhere, but we obviously skirt through the cronia story a little bit so. Yeah. This is really a film about the Indian investigation into yes. these and it's it's a good story and it's a story that these people deserve credit because we so often talk about you know India's negative contribution in terms of the illegal bookmakers and this is a good story but it did leave me wanting a little bit more on yep. you, you know just as an example I, I didn't really ever get a sense of what did Azra did do you know what what the, mm. what's the real nitty gritty of that but
1: Well and and that's the thing you know with Cronier we know about those games where he um you know it's that game where he was it with Nasser hussein where he agreed the mad declaration you know, kind of declaration yeah. the mad declaration whereas you're right with azarin i just don't know what those i mean i'm sure that they are known but you certainly don't get a sense with this documentary of what it is that he was throwing one thing that actually and maybe this is just me being a bit um me being a bit stupid but one thing this documentary actually made me think about was why it why it is that match facing actually matters beyond it being, you know, the wrong thing to do because if you're playing for your country, you shouldn't take, take money to, to lose. There was an interesting reflection made by one of the journalists who was interviewed who talks about the fact that, um, and this is a, a quote that, sco- that, that sport is meant to be unscripted. It's the unexpectedness that makes it special. If it's scripted, it takes away everything that sport stands for. And I'd never quite actually thought about it like that that we need in order to believe in sport to know that when those players are going out on the pitch that nothing is predestined everything is being created in that moment in front of our eyes according to the best abilities of those players and as soon as you think of some kind of ulterior motive bringing some kind of predestination into that game then the whole premise of what a game. I mean, I suppose that's the definition of a game, isn't it? Mm. that suddenly, that's taken away. And I don't know. I just never really thought about it. Well, the like, film, like that, or kind of beyond the moral
0: aspects of it. I, I suppose it depends on your individual outlook. But in some ways, the film has a slightly negative ending in that, as you say, a lot of the um, verdicts don't stick long term in a, in a legal sense on the uh, those involved. But in the other sense, there is a feeling that. It did lead to actual change. Um, we hear about mm. how players are now much better educated, yes. and one untold the maximum story... units
1: that exist in every single tour. Yeah. Party, you know, there's a match fixing person. I'm sorry. No,
0: and 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 I've no doubt, you know, we don't want to be idealistic about this. I'm sure there are still problems with it in the game. But, you know, when you heard some of the interviewees talking about, oh, you know, it almost made me want to give up on cricket. I felt we were a long way away from that. And one story that I always felt was worth telling as a sort of postscript here was... The fact that players, many players, not all players, are better and better remunerated does clearly make a difference here. So I was thinking, you know, they talked about mohammed Azruddin's love of, you know, expensive watches and good shoes. Watches, I mean, yeah. the modern day Mohamed Azruddin would be picking up a million dollar contract in the IPL yeah, yeah. and could have as many shoes as he wants. So um, clearly not true for everyone. There are clearly a lot of players for whom this is an issue, but maybe I'm being too wide-eyed about it but there was a feeling that maybe we've Maybe we've taken at least some sort of positive steps since this time. I'll pass that.
1: Um. So tell me, have you ever been approached in the Knees Green eleven to um, provide any information to shady characters on the boundary?
0: Well, it actually explains my low batting average. In that almost almost <laughs> every other week, I'm getting out cheaply on the behest of an illegal Indian bookmaker. If it wasn't for that, you know, my average would, would be, be in the fifties.
1: So. Left, right, and centre. <laughs> quite. Quite. Um. Oh. So that was the what was it it was the 164th episode of reverse radio leave us a review wherever you listen join us over on twitter and we will talk to you next time